I wonder if we went around the assembly this morning and asked different ones of you how many different congregations you have attended through the years. I think the number that we would come up with would be pretty amazingly high because several of us probably have been members of a number of different congregations. It was really different from years gone by where, you know, you were raised up and you attended the same church that your parents did and your children attended the same church that you did and, and it just kept going on generation after generation. Not like that so much anymore. People move around a lot. Uh, and so by virtue of that, many of us have been members of multiple congregations through the years. Now, each one of those congregations is different, as you well remember, but we could say all had their own challenges and their own difficulties that they had to work with. Some were worse than others, I would have to say. At least that's my experience. Some congregations have a lot more challenges than others. Some uh, uh, seem to roll along much easier, more easily. Uh, but the fact of the matter is there's no perfect congregations. There's no ideal situations. There's no church that doesn't face issues from time to time. Now, today what we want to talk about is some of the kinds of challenges that churches face. What are some of those challenges? And how would we be able to address that from a biblical point of view? How could we talk about challenges facing churches? Uh, well, what we want to do is we want to look, as we have in the past, but maybe with a little different take, we want to look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia that are addressed there. Uh, we know that all the churches back then faced persecution and sometimes quite severe persecutions. But each of those churches in Asia that the Lord addressed there in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 faced some specific challenges. Now, obviously, that was about 2,000 years ago, but much remains the same. And some of the same challenges they were facing are challenges that churches today face. And I believe by looking at that text in this way, we can learn what the Lord would have us to do as we deal with some of the same things they were dealing with. And so our lesson this morning, if you care to turn to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, our lesson will be taken from those two chapters. We'll spend all of our time in, in those texts this morning, uh, hopefully being able to gain some things that will help us as a church be more what God wants us to be. That's really what this is all about. And we might stop here for just a minute to say thanks for joining us this morning in this time of worship and Bible study. We're grateful that you've come we are especially grateful for those who are visiting with us. Thank you very much. Please come back when you can. You may wonder about what we're doing here at College View. And what we're doing is we're trying our, our best, or hopefully, and hopefully improving at that as time goes on, trying to be a church like God wants us to be. We believe the way to do that, of course, is to simply follow the Scriptures as carefully and closely as we can, trying to make application to the instructions that God has given us in His Word. But we thank everybody for being here this morning. Please come back every time you can if you're visiting with us. What are some of those challenges that are facing churches? Well, one of the first ones that we could point out is that churches back then faced false doctrine. Now, false doctrine was a problem. Stop and think about this a minute. We, we suggested earlier that those churches were under a very intense persecution in their day. I mean, they were really suffering. And you know, you might get the idea that in tough times like that, 
maybe the Lord would look the other direction when it came to something like doctrine. It'd be sort of like us as parents, you know. If, if, you, if you're a parent and you've got your child and your child is sick, been really sick for several days, you might kind of overlook some misbehavior on their part. If they're a little fussy, uh, if they're not quite as obedient as you hope they would be typically, well, they've been sick. I, 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 maybe I'll, I'll be a little more patient with them because they've been sick. Well, you might think that the Lord would look at these churches of Asia that way and say, well, they're in a tough situation. Uh, they're dealing with very hard times. And since it is such a difficult time, the Lord sort of say, I, I, I won't be quite as demanding on things like doctrine. I'll look the other direction. No, that's not the case. Even though these were very hard times for these churches, God still required doctrinal soundness on their part. Look at Revelation 2, beginning verse 14, as the Lord was addressing the church at Pergamum. He says, I have a few things against thee. Now, you know, they, they were, again, they were being persecuted. But he says, I have a few things against thee because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Notice, two different sets of false doctrines were being tolerated there at Pergamum. And the Lord says, I won't have that. I hold this against you. You are tolerating false doctrine. That's not right. These days, uh, we hear folks, and even, unfortunately, some of our own brethren say, doctrine, you keep talking about doctrine. We're putting way too much emphasis on doctrinal things. We don't want to hear so much about doctrine. There's too many lessons on doctrine. No, that's not right. We can't have enough teaching about the doctrine of Christ. We can't separate serving Christ from the doctrine of Christ. Doctrine is very important. And even to this church that was suffering some real hard persecutions, the Lord says, I'm holding it against you because you're tolerating false doctrine there. That cannot be allowed. On the other hand, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 at verse 2. Now, Ephesus had some of their own problems that we'll talk about here in a minute. But in regards to this matter, the Lord commended them. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou cannot bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. Notice the church at Ephesus was commended because when it came to some who were teaching false doctrine, some who were even claiming they are apostles and weren't, the church at Ephesus had put them to the test, found out that they were, were not telling the truth and had rejected them. They were doing the right thing here when it came to this matter of doctrinal soundness. And so, one of the challenges facing them back then, but certainly a big challenge facing us today, is the matter of false doctrine. What are we going to do when we face that challenge? Well, we need to be like Ephesus. Try the teachers. See if they're true to the Word of God. And if they're not, reject them. That is absolutely necessary. We cannot tolerate or, or uh, have an allowance for those who teach false doctrine. Another thing that was a problem back then was a lack of fervency. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute, but you might substitute several words for fervency. For instance, you could maybe substitute the word enthusiasm or maybe the word zeal. Uh, enthusiasm is important in a lot of things that we do. For instance, let's say you go to a restaurant. And so you go to this restaurant and the waiter or waitress who comes to serve you has just really a pretty bad attitude. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where this 
this waiter, you can tell he really doesn't want to be there. He, he's not excited about his job at all, and he's particularly not, seemingly not very thrilled about serving you. Oh, he, he brings the food, you know, he, he takes down your order and he brings the food, but you can just tell his heart is not in it. Now, you might contrast that with a waiter or waitress who seems very enthusiastic about your presence in the restaurant. Which one do you want? Uh, which one, by the way, are you going to give a better tip to when it's all said and done? Well, you want that enthusiastic waiter or waitress, right? Uh, that's sort of the idea we're talking about here with fervency. If we go back to that church at Ephesus, this was their problem. They were sound in doctrine, but their problem was that they had a lack of enthusiasm or zeal or fervency. The Lord says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. How serious was this matter that they had lost their fervency and zeal and enthusiasm? It was so serious, the Lord said, you better repent or I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. The Lord was definitely not pleased with them in that regard. What about us? What about this church? Do we have fervency? Do we have zeal and enthusiasm? Are we excited about what we're doing in service to the Lord? Or are we just going through the motions? Clearly, if we're just going through the motions, that's not good enough. The Lord is not pleased with that. So one of the challenges we face, just like they faced back then, one of our challenges is we've got to maintain a, a high level of enthusiasm and excitement, zeal, fervor for what we're doing in service to God. Another challenge facing those folks so long ago was the question of limited resources. Um, you ever drive around and see some of these big church buildings? I mean, just elaborate facilities, huge, big buildings. Uh, if you think about all that they have, they must have enormous budgets. They must have just a lot of money to work with if they're going to build these grand buildings that they're building. And you might stop and think, well, man, if, if, if we had that kind of money, we could sure do a lot more. You know, if we had money like they apparently have money, man, think of what we'd be able to accomplish. And maybe even in a sense we sort of envy them for their huge budget and maybe even use it as an excuse to ourselves as to why we're not doing more. What about that? How would the Lord look at that? Well, interestingly, to, to the church at Smyrna, he commended them. In fact, Smyrna is one of only two churches in that list of seven that had no negative things said about them. But notice, to Smyrna, he says in chapter 2, verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Smyrna apparently was a poor church, but the Lord didn't have anything against them. He didn't rebuke them or condemn them because they couldn't maintain a high level of work because they didn't have anything to work with. The fact of the matter is that the Lord is not looking at how many resources we have. Rather, He's looking at how we use what we've got. He's looking at how efficiently and effectively and faithfully we are using the resources that are at hand. So Smyrna, a poor church, He mentions their poverty, and yet they were commendable. Contrast them with Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 17. To Laodicea, he said, Thou sayest, I am rich 
And they probably were. Every indication is that they probably were rich, probably rich monetarily. He says, I am rich and increased with goods, have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So while they were a potentially rich church, spiritually, they were in destitution, uh, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, spiritually. And so again, the conclusion is confirmed. Uh, and it's not the way men typically look at it, but the way the Lord looks at it is not how much we have. We may be very limited in resources that way. It's not how much we have. It's how we use what we have in service to the Lord. That's what he's looking for. As we talk about challenges facing churches today, I hope you realize it's not all that different than it was to churches back then. Clearly, today, we see a problem of immorality even among members of the church, but that was a problem back then as well. I know I've heard some of you talk about how it used to be when some of us who were older, when we were kids at school, if we got in trouble at school, we got in additional trouble when we got home. If you got a whipping at school, you could almost count on getting a whipping when you got home, when your mom and dad found out about it. I mean, that's the way it was. That, that was very typical in, in times gone by. But boy, how times have changed. Now, uh, if a kid is uh, any, any way disciplined or, or uh, rebuked at school, typically the parents defend the kids and accuse the school. And instead of, uh, of uh, disciplining their children in compliance with the things that happened at school, instead they defend their, their children and argue against the school. Uh, well, that's, that's really different. Times have really changed in that regard. I'm going to tell you, unfortunately, the same sort of thing happens in the church. And now, when we see immorality among the members, uh, people get upset if discipline is administered. And especially, we see instances where uh, a family has a, a, a particular part, a member of that family or some part of their family, and the church has had to discipline some unruly member of their family. What happens? Well, instead of supporting the church and doing what is necessary, we find family members who get mad at the church for doing what God told them to do and to defend the immoral, unfaithful person. That's just simply not right. Well, we're facing a lot of problems with immorality in the world, but unfortunately the world is impacting the church and we're having to deal with situations where there's immorality in the church. That is a real challenge. What are we supposed to do? Well, what did the church back then do? Here's Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 20, beginning, Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Did the Lord look the other way? Does He want us to look the other way when there's immorality in the church? No. To Thyatira, he was rebuking them because they had suffered this situation to continue. In other words, they had tolerated it. They allowed it to go on. It's our duty to speak out against immorality in general, and in particular to speak out when there's immorality in the church. Just as a side note, I think it's interesting as that text goes on, 
he says, but unto you I say and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden. I want to emphasize that the Lord linked this immorality that he was condemning in the church at Thyatira. He linked that as a, a weakness in their stand doctrinally. Now think about this for a minute. And, and, I, and I hope you can make the application that, that I'm, I'm striving for here. As we see churches, as we see congregations being less and less diligent in matters of doctrine, what follows? Immorality. Now, I want to ask you if in your own personal experience you haven't found that to be true. Think of congregations you know of that have gotten soft doctrinally. What's happened to them morally? They've also become more tolerant of immorality, haven't they? And they go hand in hand. And so that's why it's so important for us to insist on sound doctrine. But we've also got to have a a sharp eye out for immorality, uh, even among our own members. It cannot be tolerated. The Lord will not let it be so. Now, in all of these things, we're not saying we must do this because this is our opinion. This is the way we think it should be. No, we're not basing it on that, are we? We're saying this is the way it has to be because the Lord said so. This was how the Lord was addressing those churches uh, in both their successes and their failures in dealing with the challenges that were placed before them. We need to learn from that as we strive to be the kind of church the Lord wants us to be. Another problem that churches face now and then as well is the problem of lethargy. Again, here's a word we probably could offer some synonyms for. Probably the one that comes first to mind is the idea of laziness. Lethargy or laziness, just not doing anything. I can remember hearing my dad several times refer to individuals that were under consideration and they were maybe pretty lazy, didn't do much. And I can remember him using the expression, you have to set stakes to see them moving. When they're at work, you get the idea. They're moving so slow, you can't really even observe their movement. You have to set a stake, and then you can you can maybe see them moving relative to that stake that you set. But that's how he described somebody who was real lazy, didn't didn't put forth much effort. Well, unfortunately, there are some members and some churches who are like that. They're just lazy. The lethargy is a problem, and the Lord is not pleased. In chapter three. Beginning verse 1, he addressed the church at Sardis. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Notice here, that the church at Sardis had a name. Thou hast a name that thou livest. But in reality, they were dead. Thou hast a name that thou livest. How did they? We would say, I think, they had a reputation. The church at Sardis had a, a, a respectable reputation. They had a name. Well, how did they get that name anyway? Well, it may be that the church there in the past had been doing well and now had given up. That's possible. So maybe their reputation was past, was based on a past that was better than they were doing at the moment. Or it may be that they simply put up a good front, you know. Uh, they, they never were really very effective in serving the Lord, but they, they put up a good 
front or, you know, they put their best face forward, so to speak. Uh, they had a reputation that it wasn't deserved. Either way, his message to, to them is, you better wake up and you better get busy. He says, you've got to repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour come upon thee. The, the message, regardless of how they came by that reputation, the reputation, they didn't deserve the reputation presently. And the Lord said, I'm telling you, you better get your act together. You better wake up. You better get moving or else. What about us? What about this church? I, I believe we could argue that the church at College View has had a good reputation in serving the Lord. Now, is the reputation continuing to be deserved? Well, I hope so. But any way you look at it, the fact of the matter is you've got to keep on keeping on because if you give up and quit, the Lord will not be pleased with you any longer. And so lethargy or laziness in churches is a, is a real problem. And we have to be on guard against that. I'll tell you another challenge that faced them and us is the business of recognizing opportunities. Now, this is not a negative thing necessarily, but we've got to be on the lookout for the opportunities that are presented to us. One of those churches, of which there were only two of the seven, that the Lord said nothing negative about them, one of them was Philadelphia. And to the church at Philadelphia, in Revelation 3, verse 8, he said, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Notice, the Lord said, I have put before thee an open door. This church was doing well. This is one of the two that was really apparently doing well. But they needed to keep moving forward. The challenge was keep moving forward. Keep looking for more opportunities to do and be what the Lord wants you to be. Now the question about Philadelphia was, would they see the open door, the opportunity that was there for them? Would they seize upon the opportunity? Would they use it effectively to bring glory uh, to the Lord? Well, their past indicated they probably would. We don't know how that turned out, but... They had an opportunity. They needed to see it and use it. And that's the same thing for us. I believe in our day and time we have incredible opportunities, new, present opportunities that are before us. We have to have the vision to see where those opportunities are and then the determination to use them, to see the open door and walk through it, so to speak. We need to, be, we need to face that challenge. It's a real challenge. And, and we need to be very aggressive in that matter. Finally, the last challenge I want to talk about facing churches uh, comes from a statement that may probably be one of the best known statements in this text of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that we've been looking at this morning. It's really very easy to see the statement made to the church at Laodicea. He says in chapter 3, beginning verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou work cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. As I said, that's, that's a pretty easy uh, thing to picture. We've all had the experience of taking a drink of something that's either cold, and, uh, it's cold but it's supposed to be hot, or it's hot but it's supposed to be cold, or it's somewhere in between, it's not what it's supposed to be, it's lukewarm, and we have actually spit it out of our mouth because of that. And that's the, the very clear... Uh, recognizable uh, illustration that the Lord uses here. The problem with the church at Laodicea, lukewarmness. They hadn't given up. They weren't dead cold. 
But they certainly weren't on fire for the Lord, and the Lord condemned them because of that situation. That's a challenge for us as well. Uh, we need to we need to be certain that we're not just drifting into sort of a lukewarm status, uh, not really working hard, not on fire for the Lord. Now, again, think about the circumstance these churches were facing. They were facing tough persecution, uh, but they still and, and in the face of that persecution, they continued to meet. They still were existing as a church, but that wasn't enough. The Lord was not pleased with them. The application for us is it's not enough for us just to keep sort of keep house, keep the doors open, keep having our regularly appointed meetings. We've got to keep moving forward. We've got to be on fire in our service for the Lord. Lukewarmness is a problem that infects churches. Let it not be our problem that we become lukewarm in service to the Lord. Well, again, as we pointed out earlier, here are seven churches that existed almost 2,000 years ago. I believe it's really interesting that many of the challenges they faced are the same ones we face today. We can learn from what the Lord said to them, how he would have us to address those challenges that we face, and we pray to God that we'll be able to do so. Thank you for your good attention to what we've had to say. As we bring this lesson to a close, we're going to sing a song of invitation. Our lesson has not been one that teaches the plan of salvation or motivates people to obey that plan of salvation, but it very well may be the case that someone here this morning knows and desires to be obedient to the Lord. And if that's the case, we want to give you that opportunity. The simple gospel plan of salvation is here, believe, repent, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're ready to obey that, Simple gospel plan of salvation. We're ready to assist you. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away and are not being faithful to him, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Wash away my sins, nothing but the blood.